Okay, if you've got your Bible this morning, I hope you do. We're in Third John. We're going to to finish this trilogy of letters from John today, and next week we're going to move into the Book of Psalms. As you're as you're getting there, I just want to recap some of the things that we talked about last week. Really briefly, we looked at the first nine verses or eight verses or so of Third John, and really we talked about a lot of stuff. I don't know if you're here, if you're able to, to listen online somewhere, but there was a lot of things that we got into last week. Here's just a bullet point list of some of them. We talked about physical health and how it's connected to, to spiritual health, the health of our souls. We talked about what we should really be getting excited about in our friendships, right? More than losing weight, more than new home projects. Like what we should really be excited about is if they're walking after Christ or not. If their life is demonstrating the spirit of God or not. We talked about reputation. We talked about how Christians are supposed to be disciple makers, not just disciples, but disciple makers. We talked about how it's right and necessary for the church to support missions financially through prayer. It's right for the church to do that. We're going to talk more about that after worship today in our Super Bowl time. And then we also talked last week about the importance of how our profession of faith and how we live out our faith should match. So our profession and our practice need to come together as a Christian. In our text today, John moves from that good example where we talked about those things. He talked about Gaius. He was writing this letter to him. He was encouraging him with these things, saying, hey, you're doing this well. Keep going. He moves from that example today to a bad example. And so we're going to read that this morning. Go ahead and turn in your text to verse 9. And just as we can learn from a good example last week, we can learn from a bad example. And this, you guys understand this because as parents, when you're watching a movie and somebody does something they shouldn't or they use a word that they shouldn't, we explain to our kids, we don't do that. That's, that's not an example that we follow. That's what John is doing with Gaius here. He's pointing this guy out and he's saying, we don't do that. So listen, verse nine through the end of the chapter. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil. But imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I'd rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we'll talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. Let's pray together one more time. God, illuminate your word to the eyes of our hearts. Without your spirit, it's nothing but a man speaking this morning. And we don't need any more of that. We need you. 
to reveal, to uncover, to discipline, to correct, to love, to nurture, to care, to comfort? And would you use your word that we're looking at this morning to accomplish those things as you see fit in our lives, as you know us better than we know ourselves? We thank you for this word and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I do want to, I do want to just point out, and there may be more like nine things here, Jason, but I want to point out five things that John specifically talks about Diotrephes to, to Gaius. He points these things out. Look at the beginning of verse nine. Diotrephes had selfish self-esteem. Now, let me explain what I mean when I say selfish self-esteem. I mean that his worth, his self-esteem, it didn't come from the right place. It came from within himself. His self-esteem came from his position, the power that he had in the church. That's where his worth came from. And it was wrong. That's not where our identity is rooted. That can't be where who we are comes from. But it did for him. This is such a sad thing because this type of attitude, as we'll see in a lot of these things... It still exists in the church today. There are folks who claim the name of Christ, whose identity isn't shaped by his love and his transforming power in their lives. Their identity is shaped by their influence over others, by what kind of pull they have in the members' meetings. This shouldn't be. Church, this should not be. John says that Diotrephes, he likes to put himself first. Some other translations translations say that he loves to be first. If you've got the King James, it says he loves to have preeminence among them, among the brothers. He loves to be in charge. That's what this means. Didn't seem to matter what he had to do or who he had to hurt. He had to be first. He wanted to be first and he was going to make it happen. He wants to be in the driver's seat. And it didn't matter what he had to do or where he had to go to get it done. Second thing in the second part of verse 9 is that he wouldn't listen to the truth. So not only was his self-esteem in the wrong place, he wouldn't listen to the truth. John says here, he says that he had written something to the church that Diotrephes had refused to let in, had refused to read to the church. We don't know what that letter was. But we know it was important enough for John to mention it here. And he uses that as a condemnation against Diotrephes. He says, this is a problem. He didn't listen to his authority. John is the apostle whom Jesus loved. Right? He walked with the Savior. He was taught by him personally. He had authority given by Jesus himself. But Diotrephes, he wanted nothing to do with John or his teaching. And so he rebelled against his authority and his teaching. And John points it out as a problem here, a bad example. He didn't want to listen to the truth. Third thing, beginning of verse 10. Diotrephes was a gossip and a slanderer. The King James translates this phrase, prating against us with malicious words. I'm not even sure if I'm saying that word right because I've never heard it before. Prating or pratting, I'm not sure. But it basically means to talk foolishly and incessantly about stuff you don't know, you really don't know about. Diotrephes' words were silly. They were idle. 
they were trifling and they were just altogether empty. But you know what's crazy? Is number one, it, that didn't stop him from talking. And number two, maybe the saddest part is it didn't stop people from listening. It didn't matter that what he had to say was meaningless and empty and slanderous in, in essence. People still listened to him. People in the church. But here, here's where it gets a little bit uh, dicey and interesting. What does John say he's going to do? He says, if I get to be there, if I get to come in person, what does he say he's going to do? It's pretty benign in the text here. It's pretty innocent. He says, I'm going to bring it up. What exactly does that mean? I think he's going to go to him face to face. Jesus gave some examples on how to deal with this sort of thing. Matthew 18, how to go to a brother who's sinning. Go to him face to face. And if that doesn't work, he's going to go to the whole church. He's going to bring it up. In the assembly of the, of the brethren, he's going to expose this guy's behavior in front of everybody. Even though John was up in years at this point, right? He's an older guy. He was ready to get in the battle again. He was ready to stand up for what was right to protect the truth. No matter what our age is or our stage in life, brothers, sisters, we should always be ready to stand for the truth. Always. We cannot say, I'm going to leave that for the young people with energy. We cannot say, I'm going to leave that for the older people with wisdom. No. Now, we need energy and we need wisdom, but we need to act at times. And, And John makes that pretty clear. Now, I don't think John was doing this, would have done this maliciously to just ruin this guy. But I do believe that he wanted the truth to be seen and the truth to be known and for the record to be set straight, not only about them because he was blaspheming against them, but also about the truth of Jesus. If he wouldn't allow a letter from an apostle in, what else was he not letting in or what else was he teaching that was suspect? So this was, these were, you know, red lights going on for John. There are situations when we're going to have to step up for truth and it's going to be uncomfortable. It's not easy in the church body or or in our personal relationships to do this kind of a thing. But you know what? If we're going to value truth, we need to point out error as well. And we don't do it maliciously either. But if we want our kids, if we want our loved ones, if we want the world to know the truth, there has to be some kind of differentiating between the two, between right and wrong. And where does that come from? From the word of God. And if this is the truth, then like John, no matter where we're at in our age and stage of life, we have to be ready to stand on it, to teach it, no matter what comes our way. And brothers and sisters, it seems more and more that stuff's going to come our way. Are we ready to stake everything that we have, our jobs, our friendships, our reputations on this word. I just want to remind us of what Paul has already said to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 4. You can turn there if you want. I'll read verses 14 through 16. This is familiar to you. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, 
by craftiness in deceitful schemes. This is Ephesians 4, 14, now 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love. Did you hear that? Speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so get this, so that it builds itself up in love. Guys, especially teenagers, young people, you need to understand deceitful schemes exist. They are out there. There are people who would deceive you if they can. Human cunning, as Paul puts it, craftiness, these things, they would toss you around back and forth like a, a little ship on, on heavy water. They would carry us away from the truth. Their aim is to confuse us. So the church must differentiate between truth and lies. The church must stand on the truth together so that, as, as Paul said there at the end, so that it builds itself up in love. Now notice something about Ephesians 4, 14 through 16 with me. It's love is not only the means by which truth is known, right? We're supposed to speak the truth in love. So it's the means by which truth is known, but it's also the end result so that we would build each, itself up. The church would build itself up in love. So that's where we're aiming for, but it's also how we get there. We speak the truth and we do it in love because if we don't speak the truth, we're not being loving. Even though we do it in love, the church must stand for and the church must, must teach truth. And I don't just mean from the pulpit. I don't just mean from the Sunday school classrooms. I mean from our homes. You, Christian, in your homes, you must teach the truth and at times you may be working against other systems to do that, but you must do it. We must tell the truth because that is what's loving. Look at the middle of Third John chapter, well, the first cha- only chapter, verse 10. The middle of that, uh, it says that Diotrephes, back on him, he would not even welcome the brothers. Diotrephes was unhospitable. He wouldn't, he wouldn't let them in the church. Evidence would show that he probably didn't welcome them into his home either. Not only did he reject John's authority by not allowing his letter in, he rejected anybody else's authority by not letting them in. Other believers, people who had truth that they were teaching, he wanted nothing to do with, and he wouldn't even let them in. He was unhospitable. It's interesting because John had just commended Gaius earlier in this chapter for doing that very thing, for being hospitable, for welcoming brothers in, even though they were strangers, it says you welcomed them in. That's the example, not to shun them, not to kick them out, not to refuse them. But it didn't end there. And the fifth and last thing I'll point out is in the last part of verse 10, is that Diotrephes became Lucifer. Now, I I said it that way to shock you a little bit, Make sure you're awake this morning. But let me explain because I think it's actually a reality here. If we think about the the figurative way that Satan is expressed in Isaiah chapter 14, it says that he said in his heart, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. 
his unchecked arrogance propelled him not only away from God, but it caused him to turn and rebel against him, to defy God. And it's the same for Diotrephes. His unchecked arrogance sent him on the path of rebellion against God's people, and it caused him to think that he and he alone had the handle on truth. And he wouldn't listen to it from anywhere else. Here's the real problem that underlies much of what Diotrephes was expressing and what, he was, what his example was, is that he believed he was in charge of the church. He thought he was in charge. These people that had the true gospel, he turned them away. Not only that, he stopped his church from welcoming them. And if they did, look at what he did. It says, at the end of verse 10, it says, he refuses to welcome the brothers and he stops those who want to and then he puts them out of the church. For desiring truth, he kicked people out of the church. He set himself up in that church body as jury and judge. He was in charge. And obviously he liked it that way. Now let me be clear, this is not biblical church discipline as laid out in scripture. When it talk, he kicks them out of the church, this is not what God's word says. There are times and there are situations when the body of Christ must take action and revoke someone's membership because of unrepentant sin. The Bible is very clear on that. We've talked about that. But that whole process, this is all to be done in humility and with the undergirding of love for the purity of Christ's bride and ultimately for the salvation of that individual. What we see in this passage isn't like that. It's people being removed from church in order to bolster someone's ego and to strengthen their position over others. That's what was going on here. What John describes here is a self-obsessed, arrogant man going rogue without the accountability of a healthy church to rebuke and correct him. That's what we see here. And I want to point out the, the downward slide of diatrophies through what we've talked about. It started just by thinking wrongly about himself and his relationship with Jesus, right? That was the first thing, selfish self-esteem. Who he was came from the wrong place. That turned into and progressed into rejecting the truth. He didn't want to hear it. And he tried then to deceive others by passing off lies about the truth, about guys who were sharing the truth, right? By slander and gossip. And then John says in verse 10, he says, and not content with that, so there's even more, then he set himself up as God in the church and he got rid of anybody who didn't agree with him. It's one thing to do evil yourself, but man, it's a whole nother thing to punish people who want to do good. And that's what he was doing. Now, as I was studying, something interesting was pointed out to me. It's clear that Diotrephes is a powerful person in the church, right? I already said that his words meant nothing, and yet people listened. He had some power. He had influence. He was probably very ambitious, maybe even well-connected in the community. When he spoke, people listened. In Second John... The Apostle John clearly condemns the wrong theology of false teachers in the church. When they're coming and they're teaching false stuff, that's an evident, that's clear 
don't listen to them, get rid of them. But he doesn't make any mention of the theology of Diotrephes in this passage. Why? Well, could it be that there was actually very little long wrong with his theology? Maybe what he said he believed wasn't the problem. Maybe he was a good church member who could recite the Romans road, gave his tithe every week, volunteered for a lot of stuff, could affirm the church's statement of faith, who appeared to have it all together. But there was certainly some disconnect between Diotrephes' practice and actual faith. His belief and his practice. And here's what really I think the big problem was. Diotrephes really didn't know God. He was a big-time leader in the church who wasn't truly regenerate. His heart hadn't been changed by the Savior. I think this is what John means in verse 11 when he says, Do not imitate evil. He had just talked about Diotrephes and all these bad examples. Don't follow that. Don't do that. Don't copy that evil stuff. Don't imitate that evil. Instead, Gaius, keep doing what you're doing. Us, Ramsey Creek, don't follow Diotrephes. Follow the example of Gaius. Diotrephes' ways are evil, as John puts it here. Self, selfish self-esteem, where it's centered on me, that's evil. Refusing to believe truth, that's evil. Gossip and slander are of the devil. That's evil. Being unloving to the brethren is evil. Being full of pride is evil. That's what John is saying. All of those things don't imitate because they're evil. Diotrephes, I think, was a well-positioned man on earth. But he had no position in heaven. And I think this is where we, we see this delineation, this paradox. He's really an unsaved church member who's risen to a position of power. He probably seems right in his theology and how he talks to, about things, but he is thoroughly ungodly in his practice. So in reality, he's just as evil as the false teachers that John warned about in Second John. But it might even be more so because it has the appearance of good. It's shaded with good things, churchy phrases. Look at verse 11 with me. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. So there's some correlation, I think, that John is making here between seeing and knowing God and doing what's right and good. And this was not Diotrephes. This is the clearest evidence that something was wrong with him. His works were evil. And so he couldn't have seen God. He couldn't know God with that being the case. This is not a man to imitate. John says that when he comes, he's going to address this stuff with him head on. And there are times when the church needs to handle issues the same way. The namesake of Christ is on the line. The purity of the gospel is on display for all to see. And if we don't 
stand for truth in our own midst, what example is that giving? What are we saying to a watching world? But I want to point out and remind us that this is not, we don't use the truth as this hammer of Thor to crush all of our enemies. That's not why we pick up the truth. We take up the truth as a sword to defend right doctrine. We take up the truth as a scalpel to do surgery, to cut out the parts that are broken and diseased. Really, the Spirit does that in us. But we do those things, we use the truth in those ways, not to harm people, but to help people. Sometimes, people do it to us, don't they? Sometimes, people who really care for your soul come up to you and confront you about a sin or a pattern of something. And maybe they're a little off base, but you can talk through it and, and you can be encouraged by that. It's not a pleasant process at times. You know this. If you've been a Christian for any time and you have people that really care about you, they're going to do this for you. You've seen this and, and probably had it happen to you. But really, by God's grace, that pain is a good pain. That pain delivers us from evil, from wickedness, and eventually from eternal separation from God. Then, without really a lot of transition between 11 and 12, John switches back to another good example in a guy named Demetrius. I don't know if, if you guys have, I think it was in a college class I had, it was more of a, it wasn't a ministry related, it was kind of like a psychology or something, but they said if you were going to correct somebody, you sandwich it between two compliments. Right? Have you guys heard this before? You know, if they're not performing well, you say, you know, I really appreciate you doing this. You need to work on this but I'm so glad that you're good at doing this or something like that. And it kind of softens the blow a little bit. I don't know if that's John's point here, but he gives us a good example and then a bad example. And then he finishes with another good example. We don't know much about Demetrius here. In fact, we know very little at all. But this is just another kind of bullet point on John's examples. Follow Gaius. He's doing, his soul is healthy. Don't follow Diotrephes. He's evil. Follow Demetrius. Look at what it says. Verse 12. He's received a good testimony from everybody. Here's a guy with a great reputation. And John says, not only that, but I, I give him, we add our testimony to it. And you know our testimony to be true. So we don't know who Demetrius was. He could have just been the guy who was delivering this letter from John to Gaius. We're not sure. And so this was maybe just John's way of saying, hey, you can trust this guy. This is really a, a, my letter to you. Um, but who, however the letter got to him and however it was, Demetrius was a trustworthy guy. You can follow him. The truth itself testifies to his example. What a gift it is. When men and women in the church live their lives in such a way that the very truth of God's word is a testimony to their Christian walk, right? When you're reading through scripture and someone pops into your head because of what you just read in God's word and what a, what a blessing it is to the body of Christ 
when that happens. Right? When you're reading the word and somebody pops to your mind. Gaius, Demetrius, these guys practiced what they preached. In biblical terms, we could say that Demetrius was above reproach. His character was so strong that any accusation made against him just couldn't stand. People wouldn't believe it. No, he, he didn't do that. I know better. I know Demetrius well. Even the truth testifies to his character. Now, I was thinking about this. I was thinking, there's nobody in this room. I don't think there's anybody alive that wants, when they're gone, that wants people to say things like this. Well, Rod was, you know, he was a nice enough guy, but he was really inconsistent in what he said and what he did. Nobody wants that said of them. Nobody wants people to say, well, you know, I liked him pretty well, well enough, but he was, he was a double-minded guy. He liked to talk the talk, but he didn't really walk the walk. Nobody wants that said about them. Nobody does. Nobody wants to be remembered that way. We want people to say this kind of thing. He practiced what he preached all the time, even when it was hard. His, his character, his reputation precedes him in godliness. This was Gaius. This was Demetrius. And John is lifting these guys up as examples to the church. Walk this way. Now, John finishes this letter really similarly to how he finished second John. Look at verses 13 and 14. He said, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we'll talk face to face. I think we can identify with John's statement here. If there was ever a time in our lives where we long for face to face get togethers, it's now when we're separated by so many different things. Written letters are wonderful. They have their place. Texts are fast and convenient and helpful. And we praise God for the technology that we have to stay connected. But it is no substitute for face-to-face. It isn't. And we learned that last year, didn't we? It's no substitute. It's not the same thing as being able to hug a friend, cry on their shoulder, have dinner at their home, watch your kids play together, be with your loved one, when they're hurting in the hospital or in the nursing home. There's no substitute for face-to-face. So we get this when John says, so much I want to say to you, but I don't want to use pen and ink. I want to be there with you. We get that. Then in verse 15, he says, peace be to you. Friends, peace be with you. Maybe that's the simplest thing to say when we can't be together face to face. That God's peace would be on you and your family. Now, I want to finish today with a a few points of application. Three points of application. Number one, we usually become like the people that we follow. We usually become like the people we follow. It's clear that John's encouragement to Gaius and to us in this letter revolves around verse 11 that says, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Our lives are shaped and molded by the people that we look up to, by the people that we follow. Are they argumentative? Is the person that you enjoy listening to on the radio argumentative? There's a good chance you're going to be argumentative too. 
Are they arrogant? It's a very good chance you're going to have a problem with pride as well. But are they forgiving? If they are, you'll probably learn to forgive by watching their example. Are they patient? That doesn't automatically make you patient, but boy, it helps, it encourages you to be that way. And the Spirit of God can work like that in their life and give them patience. Maybe he could do it for me too. So if you hang out with people like Gaius, you're probably going to learn generosity, hospitality, honor, walking the walk. If you hang out with a guy like Demetrius, if he's your friend, then you're probably going to learn to be faithful. But if you hang out with a guy like Diotrephes, you're probably going to learn to be a grumpy troublemaker. We get this with our kids. We are careful. I hope that we're careful about who they hang out with a lot because it rubs off. Parents, we understand that. Kids, I hope you understand that. Who you hang around rubs off on you, whether you know it or whether you like it or not. So I want to apply this very personally today. Think about this. If, if we all became like you, what kind of church would we have? Do you love to be first? Do you make sure that your opinion gets heard whenever something comes up? John is advising us to be extremely cautious of that kind of person. If that is you today, you can be set free by the love of Jesus. Application point number two. There is biblical wisdom, great biblical wisdom in shared leadership. Diotrephes thought he was in charge, didn't he? He thought he was the head of the church. Guys, that is always a huge mistake. And if not corrected, is a death sentence for the church. Always. In reality, who's the head? Jesus Christ is the pastor of this church, is the head of this church. Always Jesus and only Jesus. In reality, he doesn't even need my help to lead Ramsey Creek, brothers and sisters. He does not share the position of head with me or Jason or Mike or Caleb or any other person in this church. He doesn't share that and he shouldn't share that. Now, I, as your pastor, I believe that with all of my heart, God does not need Rod Omis for this church to thrive. We've got a beautiful quilt on the wall here. But before that quilt was up here, do you remember what was there? A quilt that had every name of every pastor up to this point. Our history book of Ramsey Creek has a list of pastors if, if Jesus tarries, there will be guys after me. That's a good thing. This church, by the grace of God, has been around for over 200 years. And I've only been here for almost 18. That's a drop in the bucket. And I praise God for the history here and to, for that reminder to show us he doesn't need me. 
He really doesn't. Now, I will say that it is a privilege, and I'm honored to be a pastor here. I love you all, and I, would, I, I, I hope God never takes me away. But he doesn't need me to do what he wants to do here. I just serve as an under-shepherd alongside the other elders here. And guys, that is a good thing for the church. It is good that I'm not the only pastor here. A plurality of leadership is a blessing, not only to the pastors, but to the church for a bunch of reasons. And I'm not going to go into all of them. I'll just give you two quick ones today. It's, number one, it's a blessing to the pastor because it, it, allow, it, it doesn't allow them to burn out. And it protects the church from people like Diotrephes or the spirit of Diotrephes. Because almost every person is subject to lean that way in the right circumstances, myself included. So shared leadership reminds me, I'm not your savior. I can't fix you, but Jesus can. Because he really leads this church. He's really the head. It also reminds me, though, that I don't, have, I don't do ministry here all by myself. I don't bear that burden all under my own strength. God has equipped the elders here where one is lacking, another is strong. Just like he does that in the body, he does that in our leadership. It's, it's so hard, in a good way, it's hard for diatrophies to rise up when there's a healthy structure of leadership in, in, a, in a church body. When there's healthy accountability in place, because then I can't rise above the authority that God has given me in the church because I've got other people who are holding me accountable and grounding me in the truth. If a pastor isn't teaching or behaving as he should, the other pastor elders should hold him accountable and should correct him and should rebuke him when needed. And if it goes beyond that for some reason, then the whole church steps in in discipline. There's great wisdom in shared leadership. And I'm so thankful that God has brought that about here at Ramsey Creek. And we see how that could have prevented heartache in this church with diatrophies had it been in place. Third thing, last thing, the most important thing is to know Jesus personally. It's to actually know God. And I think this is where Diotrephes fell short. He hadn't seen God, as the text says. He didn't do good. He did evil because he hadn't seen God. Well, he hadn't seen God because he didn't know Jesus. Because in him, we see the exact imprint of the nature of God, Hebrews 1 tells us. So for all the negative things that John said about Diotrephes' example... Look at how he described the purpose of the traveling missionaries back in verse 7. Look back there with me. In verse 7, these guys who were taking the truth out, it says that they went out for the sake of the name. That's such a cool phrase. They went out for the sake of the name. Is that how you live your life? For the namesake of Jesus? Or do you live it for your own namesake? Do you live it for your own accumulation of compliments? Why do Christians give up the comfort of their hometowns to be missionaries overseas among people that they don't know for the namesake of Jesus? Why do Christians open their homes to kids whose parents are out of the picture? Why do Christians 
endure suffering? Why do we patiently endure situations that are unfair for the name of Jesus? That's why. Why do we stand for truth in the midst of a society that glorifies evil for the namesake of Jesus? Brothers and sisters, the church, Christians, do everything that we do for the namesake of our Savior because he is worthy of it. We do it all for him because each one of us has to answer this question. Do I know him today? We have to answer that individually. I can't for you. I can't for my own children. Do you know him today? If you don't know God through his son, Jesus Christ, you don't live for his namesake. You cannot. That doesn't mean you have to stay there. You can hear the name. You can know the name in the head knowledge sense, maybe like Diotrephes did, but do you really know him personally today? That's the question that we have to wrestle with. That's the question that I want to leave you with today. Do you know him? Diotrephes didn't. I don't think it ended well for him. Scripture assures us, I read this verse from Romans last week, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This confidence that we can say that, that we can preach that truth, it comes from Jesus' perfect obedience, his atoning death, and then his resurrecting life. That's how we can say with sureness, everybody who calls will be saved because of those things. Is his life your life today? It can be. The moment that you call on him in full surrender and in faith is the moment that his life becomes your life. I would invite you to know him today, to do that today. He, he longs to impart his life and joy to you. As the worship team comes and we sing our final song in reflection, I'm going to stand up here and I would love to talk with you more about that. If you're sitting there and you're saying, I don't think I know him for real. Maybe I'm, I think I might be more like Diotrephes than I am like Gaius. I need you to pray for me. Come up and talk to me. I'd love to pray with you. Let's pray now. Lord, I get a little mo- emotional talking about this, Lord, just because I know the sin in my own heart and because I know that I don't always live my life for the namesake of Christ, and yet I see and think of examples of people in this church body. They're not perfect, and I get that, but they do this so well. And Lord, it, it brings out tears of joy to see them walking in the truth. Lord, we can put on a game. We can put on a face. We can play a game. It's, it's actually easier to do that than to be real and genuine. And, and I pray that you would free us from that kind of behavior and attitude. Lord, strip down the walls and the facade that we put up where we say we're good, but we don't live it because we don't really know you, Lord. Help us to really be honest about that in our evaluation of ourselves this morning. Not to despair, Lord, but to know that there is hope found at the cross. There's hope found in Jesus. And so, Lord, as we, as we sing, I, I pray that our hearts would be moved by this truth, Lord, and that we would really evaluate the question, do we know you today? In Christ's name I pray, amen.